big theme of this conversation is how context is important and your work environment is important. And if, if you want to add, go to your organization, you need to understand the problems and constraints of its people. But if your environment is constant crunch, uh, you know, and all this business, even if you could wave a magic wand and make everyone write Go, you know, and ignore all those problems and everyone's now writing Go, your job might be a bit more novel for a while, but you're not going to enjoy it. Being with your changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean's developer cloud makes it simple to launch in the cloud and scale up as you grow. They have an intuitive control panel, predictable pricing, team accounts, worldwide availability with a 99.99 uptime SLA and 24-7, 365 world-class support to back that up. DigitalOcean makes it easy to deploy, scale, store, secure, and monitor your cloud environments. Head to do.co slash changelog to get started with a $100 credit. Again, do.co slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Changelog Plus Plus is now a thing. Support Go Time and all Changelog podcasts with your membership. Ditch the ads, get closer to the metal, and help ensure we produce awesome Go Time episodes into the future. Join now at changelog.com/slash plus plus. Okay, let's get right into it. Here we go. And welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Riot. Today we're talking about how to introduce Go to teams that currently don't have Go. When is this a good idea and when is it not? And what do we need to know before we embark on this? Helping me get to the bottom of it today, it's John Calhoun. Howdy, partner. Hey, Matt. How are you? I'm good, mate. How are you? I'm pretty good. You notice I did uh, that voice because I had thought that Calhoun John sounds like uh, a bandit from a wanted poster in a Western, doesn't it? Like wanted, $25. Only $25. I must not be a very good criminal. You have to adjust for inflation. That's that's actually quite a lot of money these days. Um, We're also joined by author of Learn Go With Tests, Sony Chris James. Hello, Chris. Hello, Matt. Good to see you. Welcome to Go Time. Thank you very much. Very excited to be here. Yes, I'm excited to have you, mate. And an interesting fact about Chris, not only did he write Learn Go with Tests, which a lot of our listeners, I think, will be already familiar with, both of his names are also first names. Yeah, I hadn't, no one actually pointed that out to me before, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. You're in good company. Rod Stewart, Jimmy Stewart <laughs> also is another one, and John Stewart. I could only think of Stewart's. Yeah. But yeah. Oh. But which do you go by, Chris or James? Um, Chris, uh, James would be a mistake. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Well, we don't like to make mistakes. No. Okay. So let's get started then. What's a good reason? Why, why, first of all, do people want to introduce Go into teams? What are some kind of sensible reasons for this? Got any ideas? I mean, Go is pretty good, isn't it? <laughs> I think it's the reason it's my uh, sort of language of choice is because any old developer can write some software uh, on their laptop uh, and declare they've made something. But 
making software that can be used in a, in a broader context with a team of multiple people and software that will live not just for a few months, but for many years, uh, that's a whole different skill. And I kind of feel like Go's main strengths are catered towards that kind of thing. So things like the backward compatibility uh, guarantee, I think is a really big thing. In a previous life, I had to upgrade a Scala 2.8 project to Scala 2.10 project. Mm. And that took me weeks. Oh. Uh, and you compare that with, like in the girl world, it should, in theory, just be a little uh, config change and you're done. So when you bring in things like the uh, sort of the testing story, the excellent standard library, uh, it does make a, a sensible choice, I would say, for a general purpose language. Yeah, okay. So that's interesting. I, I like the quote. I wrote down what you said. You said it's pretty good in it. And I think... It is, but is that enough of a reason? Like the fact that I love Go, is that a good reason for the team then to start doing Go? And I'm thinking also, if you're a member of the team that's not yet responsible for tech decisions, and some some people depend on how they organize themselves, sometimes you have tech leads or even managers or even people outside of the team are responsible and, and selecting the tech. So is it enough that it's just something you like? Uh, no, probably not. Uh, I, I think what you have to bear in mind is that programming languages, are they're not a goal in themselves. They're a means to an end. Mm. Um, so if you're thinking about championing Go in your job, try and put on your boss's hat, uh, as you mentioned. It's unlikely that a CTO is going to get a bonus because some systems were written in Go. Like, I don't think that'll be in her contract. She's probably more measured on how successful projects are executed, uh, and it can go down to more specific things like, uh, I don't know, like uptime, performance, costs, and that kind of stuff. And I think if you're trying to bring Go into your company, yeah, you shouldn't take that point of view that I just went with. Take the point of view of your boss and think about how can you help them achieve their goals using Go? Because hmm. then you can relate Go and its strengths to those problems rather than just thinking about all the cool things about Go. Yeah, so that's that's interesting. And, and you're right, there are some aspects of Go which do make this a better candidate, actually, than other languages, I would say. One of the examples, the thing that always springs to mind for me is the, is the minimalism in the design of Go. The fact that there aren't that many keywords, there aren't that many language features. It's quite a cut-down language, if you, especially if you compare it to C-sharp and Swift and other languages. So it, it, in a way, I think it does have an edge for, for this sort of, to be a good candidate for, for this. Hmm. I think one of the ways it really works in that sense is that, let's say you're a Rails shop and you, you use Rails because you can whip up CRUD type apps really quickly. And, you know, Rails, Django, those type frameworks are very good for that. Um, but if you have some sort of background job or something, you know, some sort of API endpoint or something like that where performance becomes more of a problem or... You need concurrency or, you know, some other thing there. The fact that Go is something where anybody who's programmed in almost any language can just look at the code and generally know what it's doing is a big plus. Um, you don't have to retrain your entire organization to be like, okay, we're going to learn this new Rust thing. And, and Rust is one of those languages for me where I look at it and I'm like, I actually have to learn this. Mm. Um, I can't just look at some code and go make some changes. Go, on the other hand, while it might not be idiomatic or perfect Go, I can understand it and make some changes. So I think... One of the better reasons that you might have for like, you know, looking at the CTO's eyes is if you have a problem that you need some other language for and Go is a good fit, you could probably make some solid arguments on that side where, you know, it's going to solve this problem. It's going to be easy for us to pick up. You know, all of those pluses are there. 
but I do think that as developers, we have that we we have that desire to learn new things, and I think that might be a mistake sometimes. I mean, we mm. talked about this in the last episode where people want to learn Kubernetes and all these other things, so all of a sudden they go out and introduce them to their project, and then when they go leave somewhere, it's like, who's maintaining this? Who knows how to do it? And like nobody on the team does. So I think you need to avoid that sort of reasoning, but Go is one of the upsides to it, at least for me, is that even if somebody does that and leaves, it's not challenging enough that somebody can't pick it up. Yeah, I think I'd like to add to that. I think it's simplicity uh, sort of plays a part in the hiring aspect of the organization as well. Uh, as I mentioned before, I, I used to work in a Scala place, and we found it very hard to hire people who were technically strong enough to write good Scala because it's really easy to write really bad Scala. Hmm. Whereas with Go, I mean, obviously, you know, it's not entirely foolproof. You, you can make mistakes and things. But certainly over the past few years, when I've been uh, working with Go and working with uh, less experienced people, I find they can pick it up relatively easily. Like I think if they, they have some familiar with, familiarity with you know, another general purpose language, they can usually pick it up. I mean, usually the biggest stumbling block is typically when you start off, you start with dynamic language like Ruby or JavaScript, say, and then going to a statically type language is sometimes a bit of a challenge. But once you get over that, it's all curly brackets and variables and things really in the end of the day. Uh, so, that, so that makes it quite uh, a safe choice for our sort of risk-averse CTO. Mm. Yeah. I, I did notice that Ben in the Slack had mentioned that introducing Go tooling works well, or Go for tooling. And I think that's something that I've seen. Um, I'm guessing, you, I don't know if you guys are the same, but uh, I've talked to a couple organizations where if they need to build like a command line utility or something like that, either internally or for customers, they've found that Go is really nice because you can get it to compile for every language, and all of a sudden you have this tool that would have been much harder to build in another language. But more importantly, I think like one of the key things here is that Almost every success story I've heard has involved a project that needed solved, and they proposed, well, it's, it's small enough that they can propose, let's try building a solution in Go. And I think that's one of the big keys if you're going to try to introduce Go to your team is that you can't just shove it in there at some point. If you're starting a brand new project, you might be able to make the argument of, hey, let's do this. But if you're not doing that, which I think is most people, like most people aren't rewriting their app or starting something from scratch. So you look for like some small thing that you can introduce Go with. And I think that's probably one of the biggest keys to like having a successful introduction. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head when you said uh, you said the word small. And I think that actually is is a good thing to think about. If you if there is a small problem that you're going to solve, especially one that you know, sometimes these tasks come up where you just have to process some files or process some data or something, get something ready, and maybe it's only something you're going to run once, but it's your job to solve this problem. That's kind of a perfect candidate for very early stages because, you know, it's it's something that only you are going to be using, maybe initially, but it's still an opportunity to solve that problem with Go, maybe even using some of the features of Go that you're excited about, like concurrency and things. And and I've done this, and, and I did this a while back with uh, FilePath Walk, and I was walking files, and then playing around with different concurrency on the processing of those files. I had to do a simple task. I'm not great in the bash command line. I'm sure a bash wizard would be able to just do it with a single line of ugly something. And so, you know, but it's it was nice for me to explore the concurrency side of Go by tackling that problem. So in a way, I got I got to explore it myself 
at the same time, I was solving a real problem that the team needed solving. And then it was nice to just do a little show and tell of it. And, you know, yeah, I said, look, this is how I did it. I put the code in, in the repo somewhere. Somebody had a similar problem and they were able to take the code and adapt it and just solve that problem. And we ended up having like a file walker kind of little tool that we could reuse and just change for different purposes. So yeah, that thing about the tooling, you know, when you've got some little tool that you need, even if it's not going to be given to customers or even other team members, but solving a real little problem, I think is key. And and if it's small enough as well, it's you don't mind throwing it away. If it's a failed test, like if you do a little thing and it's not working or it's too hard, or if you leave and the team are left with it, if it's small enough, uh, then it's not that big a job to rewrite it or replace it if you need to. Yeah, I think it's important, particularly if it's unfamiliar uh, with yourself or with people you're working with, to try and keep the problem space small. Uh, I think a lot of people, when they're trying to learn anything, uh, sometimes they sort of take on too many things and spin too many plates. Uh, I mean, I literally did this with Go. Uh, I, just, I remember reading about Go ages ago, and I thought, what I'll do is I'll learn Vim at the same time. And obviously, I just got nowhere, right? <laughs> you know, I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. I couldn't edit text, and I couldn't understand the language. And uh, you know, I, I got into a complete mess. And I, I literally let go for like six months. I like tried this and went, "Oh, I can't do this." And yeah. it was actually I couldn't do Vim. It wasn't I couldn't do Go. Is it you? You had to get the code right the first time. As <laughs> you're <Yeah, that's laughs> typing it, you can't make a yeah. mistake. Yeah. So definitely, I think yeah, try and keep the problem space small, like smaller utilities. And I think it's also worth saying that like you know, I think we're going to say this a lot, like context is really important. Uh, and quite a lot of developers, uh, they have a lot of eyes watching what particular work they're doing. You know, we've got the Jira's and the and the t- tasks and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, and every morning you have to say what you're doing and stuff. Uh, and, you know, if you're flippant about it, you might get into trouble. But if you say, I'm going to solve this specific problem, which is a problem that's causing us pain, and then go, go, then it's okay. You know, you can just do that. And you're adding value, but also uh, sort of, proving that Go is a viable tool uh, for your particular business. I think one key that's also easy to forget is the like isolation. Like if you can solve an isolated problem, that helps a lot because it's not shoved in there where everybody, like Matt mentioned something that processes files. Like that's isolated enough that if you need to throw it away and write something else in another language, it's really not that big of a deal. But if you like throw it into this big, you know, microservices, like even that's not as bad, but you know, if you throw it into this big thing where people then have to learn how to use it and everybody in your team has to learn how to use it, that becomes a little more challenging. So I definitely think looking for those isolated problems help on that. You know, I'm going to solve this real pain problem. You whisper it's in go. And then, you know, you say, you know, it's this isolated thing. So if it doesn't work, it's, it's really not a big deal. Like we tried it, we throw it out. And at that point, you should have a pretty good idea of how to solve it in any other language because you've already written the code. You're just, you know, translating at that point. Mm. There's something about the fact that when you're doing something that you're really interested in, you tend to do a better job. I, I certainly do. But if I was using Go for the first time to solve something, I would be very motivated to get that to work. So I think that's something that that tech leads and managers could take from this you can enable that sort of situation. You can enable that environment where people are able to have a little autonomy and and explore things and try different things and, and do little experiments, which may fail and that should be okay. You, you can still do a, like a brown bag session on it and 
talk about why it didn't work. You know, I mean, if you're doing a rust one, um, or in your case, James, maybe if you're stuck in Vim and you can't get out, uh, or you don't know how to go and <laughs> change some text, um, that could be an interesting little uh, lesson, I think. You know, so even if there are things that don't work, they're still interesting. They're still worthwhile, and they're still worth sharing. I think. So speaking of things that don't work, one of our listeners in in the Go Slack had mentioned that one of the hard parts is finding talent, and I think you will possibly get that pushback from managers where they're thinking about hiring new team members and uh, you know growing the team and actually being able to manage this project. And I know that there are going to be real concerns about we can't introduce 10 different languages to our code base. Like, that's going to be a challenge. We can't introduce a language where you can't hire people for that. And I think that might be one of the issues right now with Go, at least sometimes, is that people think it's a new language, it's going to be hard to find people. I would probably, if I had a manager doing that, my push or my response would be, let me do something small and let me see if I can teach the team how to use it. And like, if it's a quick enough transition, then that means we can bring other good developers on and they can learn Go really quickly. But if it's something where it, it takes too long or you feel like it's going to be problematic, then you know we can revisit that. And it's kind of like you said, you can scrap it if it doesn't work. But that's kind of a way to do an isolated test and improve that it's quick and easy to learn. Because Go, in my opinion, is one of those things that while you might not be able to hire people that have been using it for 10 years, you can definitely hire people that can learn it in a couple weeks and and do well with it. And I think managers also forget the other side of it where there's people actively looking for jobs that have Go because they want to learn it. And I think they discredit like how much of a hiring tool that can be. Yeah. I was going to make that point. I get a lot of people asking me, how can I find Go jobs? It's people that either have just learned it or they want to learn it or they usually they know it and they're using it for some of their personal projects and they want to turn that professional. I get asked that a lot more than I get asked the opposite way around. Carl Mendes in the Gopher Slack mentioned that uh, it says a lot of recruiters still don't know what Go is and it can put small orgs off. And I think that's probably because they hear people telling them to go a lot, don't they, in their job. Like I've t I always tell recruiters, go away. I'm constantly saying that. <laughs> so no wonder. Maybe we need to spend a bit more time uh, with those recruiters and help them. I think this is an interesting topic. And I think my own experience was, um, I don't know, about four years ago, I, I joined a company and I know I knew full well they weren't doing Go, even though I wanted to, to do Go. Um, but I knew the CTO and I knew the kind of environment he was trying to build. Uh, and it was very much a kind of like a learning environment, sort of empowering teams to, you know, build software the way they want to. So I felt quite confident, like, if I can get in there and I can get to know people and things, I think, you know, I, I could convince enough people to make that happen. And, and thankfully, I did. And, and I think the hiring thing is interesting because, like, yeah, they're, they're, depending where you are, there is just a small pool of people who describe themselves as Go developers. But as we said, it's, I think if you're a decent software engineer, you'll be fine. You know, certainly at the, the place I'm talking about, everyone was writing JavaScript and it was all happy and stuff. But we built a community of people who wanted to learn Go. And it started small, and it grew bigger and bigger. And we did all sorts of activities, which I guess we can go on to later. And eventually, we got to that critical mass where it's like it was no longer seen as a risk to write systems in Go. It was like, well, we've got enough people here. We've proven over the past few months we've got a bunch of people who are interested in Go. We've written some, you know, some little command line tools like you mentioned. And then at that point, it just felt like a natural thing to do rather than kind of like this 
big business case with lots of stress behind it and stuff. It just felt like this is mm. an okay thing for us to do. Yeah, I'd say to people, try and find good environments, right? You know, you won't necessarily get to right go on day one, but if it's a good environment, you might get to in a few months' time. Mm. How many people was it for you in your case before you felt like you had that critical mass? So to add some context, this place had um, about 30 to 40 software developers, I'd say. Mm-hmm. And at first, you know, I'm just talking to people and I'm talking about going and stuff and going, oh, it's really cool. And, you know, I've got like two or three people who are like, yeah, actually, this is this is pretty cool. I'd like to start learning this. And I think it's really important to have some allies with you to help you push this forward. I think particularly if you're in a big-ish organization, you can't spearhead this yourself. You need help. So I had those two or three people where I thought, yeah, they're going to really help me out. And we started just doing things like book clubs and things and, you know, doing activities at lunchtime and stuff. And then, yeah, I, I guess we got to a point where we had, say, I don't know, 10, 15 people who I would describe as wouldn't be offended at writing some Go. At that point, I, it, it was an easy conversation with the CTO. I was like, look, this isn't just me making some snowflake system and then I'm going to run away and then you're going to be stuffed. Like, there's going to be plenty of people who can support this software. How much time does your team spend building and maintaining internal tooling? I'm talking about those behind-the-scenes apps, the ones no one else sees, the S3 uploader you built last year for the marketing team, that quick Firebase admin panel that lets you monitor key KPIs, maybe even the tool your data science team hacked together so they could provide custom ad spend analytics. Now, these are tools you need, so you build them, and that makes sense. But the question is... Could you have built them in less time, with less effort, and less overhead and maintenance required? And the answer to that question is yes. That's where Retool comes in. Rohan Chopra, Engineering Director at DoorDash, has this to say about Retool. Quote, the tools we've been able to quickly build with Retool have allowed us to empower and scale our local operators, all while reducing the dependency on engineering, end quote. Now, the internal tooling process at DoorDash was bogged down with manual data entry, missed handoffs, and long turnaround times. And after integrating Retool, DoorDash was able to cut the engineering time required to build tools by a factor of 10x and eliminate the error-prone manual processes that plague their workflows. They were able to empower backend engineers who wouldn't otherwise be able to build front ends from scratch. And these engineers were able to build fully functional apps in Retool in hours, not days or weeks. Your next step is to try it free at retool.com slash changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. So... When you talk about a good environment, I assume one of the things that's there is like, if you work at an organization that's in crunch time, pretty much all the time, which (laughs) really means it's not crunch time. But if you're in crunch time all the time, or even if you are in a good environment where, how do I, like basically you're in a good environment, but you need to get a release out or something needs to happen. I think one of the things that's key is that you have to look for the right timing. Like you mentioned timing too, is you have to find a good organization that'll, you know, that's actually open to this sort of thing, and then you have to find a good time for it inside that organization. And I think that's something that other people forget too, is that like you didn't just jump in and say, hey, let's go write some Go and push for it. You waited until you had the critical mass. You probably waited till like, okay, 
We don't have any major things that need to be shipped in the next month. Like we've got a little bit of wiggle room here. Uh, you know, you wait for all those things to sort of line up and, and you have a team that's on board. Because I think even then, if you love Go and you think it's perfect for the problem, if you have a team that just does not like Go, it's not going to work there. To your point, uh, you know, I'd love to pretend that I did it all perfectly and executed it with brilliant empathy and things. But actually, funnily enough, um, I think in my first few months there, we, we were doing an inception. And for those who are unfamiliar with inception, it's like a thing where you kind of get everyone in a room and you have like a meeting for two weeks, which sounds horrendous, but actually, you know, it can be quite fun and engaging. And you're basically deciding you how go to go into each other's dreams. <laughs> it feels like it at times, mm. but uh, normally it's just some, you know, dull meeting room with some whiteboards and things. Oh. Uh, but, you know, you discuss the products and stuff and you think like, how are you going to build it and stuff? And I actually thought to myself, it's not unreasonable for me to say, this is a new project. So we could write a new system and go, right? And I remember saying it out loud. And I remember getting shot down so hard by a project manager. He said, look, the developers spent time spiking out programming languages. And we've decided we're going to write everything in JavaScript because that lets us be efficient and, you know, share code, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I bit my tongue, but I definitely remember being really salty about it and thinking to myself, who's this guy to tell me who's right software and stuff? <laughs> but when I think about it, I think to myself, um, you know, I, I need to add a bit more of empathy, right? This guy, again, think about incentives and stuff. His job and his, like his, how he's judged is in how well projects are executed. And here's this dev who's barely been there like two months throwing in all this risk. Because we can talk about how simple and safe Go is, but it's still a risk to like bring in a new language in. doesn't matter how simple it is. It is risk. And I had to, so, so I, the lesson I took from that is even though, I feel like I'm right. You should definitely try and read the room and think about, is it really worth raising this at this point? Because all it really did was just, it just sort of soured the rest of the meeting a little bit, or at least it did for me. Yeah, I know, like one of the things that's sometimes hard to grasp as a developer, especially like when you're building your own personal projects, you're like, okay, it doesn't really make much of a difference if I jump from Go to JavaScript or whatever. Like there's not that big of a, a risk factor there. I mean, there's some risk, but it's not as much. But like in a big organization, like you mentioned, and this isn't even like a huge organization, but like if it's all in JavaScript, you can reuse things. So one example is some people build like tools to generate the starting framework for like a microservice or something. And it generates a bunch of code for them. And if you jump to a new language, all of a sudden they lose all of that. Somebody has to somehow find a way to replicate it. And then there's the, how do we make the Go version act exactly the same as we expect the others to act? Because I did see one project, I think it was one trying to go from Rails to Go, and they tried to rewrite the entire API. And the issue they ran into was that Rails did a bunch of subtle things that they didn't realize with requests coming in to like manipulate data or do something else. And they basically long-term, they learned that trying to get Go to act exactly the same way that Rails did was actually challenging because there's all these things they didn't know that were happening that were happening that they had to account for and they didn't want to break anything. And I understand that if you have a working ecosystem at a company, it's hard to want to break that. And, and that's why I think sometimes finding those isolated problems, again, is just really valuable early on because you can make the argument for, okay, it solved these problems really well. And even if we can't use it across the entire org, we can at least use it to solve like a specific subset of problems. Yeah. that In that case, it's probably Ruby doing, having some magic and doing more, prom, you know, over delivering and under promising where Go doesn't do that. Go will tends to stick, doesn't it, to the spec. It sticks to the letter of things generally. Or at least there's not a lot of magic that's in there. So that sometimes is something for sure to be aware of. But of course, that's a strength as well as a weakness. I mean, you know, the fact that Go is very expressive and easier to reason about and things and there's no magic stuff happening. 
Yeah. And I think the kind of architecture as well probably matters, right? If you've got microservice architecture, one of the advantages of microservices really is that you can have different languages. Maybe they're better suited for certain tasks. Each microservice could could be a different language. Now, there's a cost, obviously, to to that from maintenance, but is you could probably make a good case in some in some situations for this component, this small component, could it would be great in Go um, and is quite low risk. If it doesn't work, we've still got the other component. You know, that's probably not the same in monoliths. I guess mm. is it. Yeah, I actually made the the exact argument uh, when we sort of finally made the push because uh, the thing about microservices is you know they're, they're all hype and you know and it's an interesting architectural approach, but it's not without its costs, right? Like there's a lot of costs to having a distributed system. I mean, in general, distributed systems are just hard, right? It's much harder than calling a function if you have to do it over the network, right? There's other things to consider. So definitely when I was sort of talking this through uh, the CTO and stuff, I was saying like, well, look, we've put all this investment in a microservices architecture. And, you know, one of the definite selling points in my mind of that architecture is it gives you that flexibility to kind of just pull out a, you know, write a service in a new language or in a different language or the best language for the job. In our case, we had a service that we wrote in Node because we wrote, or in JavaScript rather, because we wrote everything in JavaScript, right? Um, But, it was on a very CPU-bound task, uh, and it just ended up being incredibly slow. Uh, and it was becoming a real problem. Like We just couldn't actually deliver a, a good experience because this thing was just taking forever to process these messages and things. Uh, and I think it was a really nice example of just being opportunistic about it and just going, look, this thing is CPU-bound, and it's really slow. We've spent months getting people involved with going things. So it, it became quite an easy sell because it, was like, it wasn't like we had a poor performing system and then went and just threw our hands up you know we spent a couple of weeks trying to make it work but we didn't really get where we wanted to go so I, you know, and so to speak uh, so i just went let's just try and write this and go right i think a big coming back to the kind of the scope of uh, doing things because we had written the software even though it wasn't performed we understood what it had to do right so we had a good understanding of the ins and outs of what it needed to accomplish so therefore that kind of reduced the amount of stuff we needed to do all we had to do is basically well, let's say all we had to do, but we had to reproduce it in Go, but it just reduced the amount of risk. Because it was like, mm. well, we know what we need to build. We already have all the black box tests around it that we could just reuse. We just plug in a new Go system uh, and you know, and cross our fingers. And thankfully, it was like an amazing success story for us. I mean, we went from 10 node instances with half a gig of RAM each uh, to three Go instances with like 128 meg. And it was like almost mm. 10 times as faster, wow. um, which mm. was... It was awesome. Like it was probably one of the coolest moments of my career was being able to kind of go, look what we did. You know, we've yeah. we've gone, we're, we we've invested this time in learning this new language, and it's actually had a a business outcome. Coming back to our CTO friend, you know, it's we, we managed to sort of complete that circle of mm. value. I guess, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I love that. You've mentioned a few things in that which I think are really worth pulling out knowing the ins and outs of a thing so if you're going to rewrite something that's already exists often the figuring out the ins and outs is the hard bit and implementation tends to be quite easy once you know what you're building so yeah that's another good point if there is something that exists already and you feel like go can do a better job at it and there will be lots of examples in node and 
um, you know, Go is a, you know, think about it. It does, it's, it compiles right down uh, for different architectures. It's, it does do quite a good job at certain tasks, which, uh, which other languages won't, won't be able to compete with. So yeah, I think that's a great one. If you can do a better job in Go, um, that's going to be a much easier story. Yeah, uh, and, and it was nice because we were basically just, we were stuck, right? We just didn't really know what to do. It's like this, we can't just keep throwing more instances at it and hoping for the best. Like it was just going to run up a ridiculous bill. Uh, and yeah, as part of the cell, yeah, I just said, look, we know what we need to build. You know, I gave a finger in the air, uh, two or three weeks, right? I reckon we can do it in two or three weeks. And we did. And, you know, it wasn't the smoothest ride. You know, we had to, there are some libraries that are in Node that just weren't in Go and we had to kind of write that kind of stuff. But still, when I look back at it, it, it couldn't really have gone better, to be honest. Mm. Yeah, oh. it was really nice. I love hearing that. Uh, by the way, if you've just put two fingers up in the air and come up with two weeks and then don't don't then deliver it in two weeks, it makes the rest of us look bad who can't estimate. <laughs> yeah, I'll get kicked out of the union. Yeah, you'll be kicked out of, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, although we don't know when. To add to that point, like when Matt and you were talking about knowing the ins and outs is challenging. So recently I had somebody reach out to me and essentially they were trying to rewrite a library. I think it was in Python. There was a Python library that would take SQL and I think was trying to spit out CSVs or something like that. And mm. I don't remember exactly what it was doing, but essentially their, their confusion was that they're like, Go is supposed to be faster than Python. They wrote this tool that does this and it wasn't faster. And they're like, I don't understand why it's not faster. Mm. And I do think that there are going to be times where either you don't understand the ins and the outs, as you described, or you don't understand the bottlenecks. Because in this case, there's a hundred different ways that it could have been bottlenecked that weren't the language. It could have been the database you're working with. It could have been writing to a file. It could have been a bunch of other stuff. Who knows? So if you do have one of those cases where you're trying to bring Go to your team and it doesn't work, it doesn't actually give you those positive results you're looking for, how would you guys handle that, I guess? Like, would you give up on Go? Would you, you know, try to tell them, well, this wasn't the right one, but, you know, it was worth a shot? Great question. I, I think in general, yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I think in general with software development, I think it's a real skill to try and um, lift up risk as soon as you can. Uh, you know, that's a big thing about iterative development, right? You try and figure out what are the riskiest things uh, and try and tackle them first so you can kind of get an understanding. Uh, but I also think there's always a risk with this kind of introducing Go to your team that you're not being honest, right? You know, we all love Go uh, and it's great and we don't have to list all the reasons why. But, you know, it's not the magic silver bullet, right? It's It has its downsides and things. And it's always important to be quite realistic about this kind of stuff. And I think if you're going into an endeavor where you don't truly know if it's going to be more performant, you need to lay that out up front and just go, look, I haven't, you know, I, I'm pretty sure it will be more. I mean, this is what I did with my thing. I said, like, I'm pretty sure that this will be way more performant in Go, but please don't fire me if it isn't. Um, wasn't my exact wording, but, <laughs> you know, it's about expectation management, I think. Hmm. I think that makes sense because my brother was working on a project once and he was doing something with WebSockets. It was really simple, whatever he was doing. It was like a simple live chat server that they didn't need to persist records. It was just kind of like, if you got it, you got it. If you didn't, great. And I think he was using Fine. Is that the library that's in Ruby or JavaScript or something? There's, so he's using some some library to do the WebSocket stuff. And he found that under heavy load, this project was basically coming to a crawl and the, the WebSocket server was the issue. And he had looked at some things to sort of scale it up and to fix it. And at one point I'd basically looked at it and I'm like, this thing has way more than what you need. Like you know, what you're actually looking for is super simple. Let's see if we can write something and go. And I sort of did what you said, Chris, where I 
told him up front, like, I don't actually know if this is going to be faster, but I have a feeling it will be because we're going to strip out everything we don't need. We're going to keep it super simple. And, you know, Go should be good at this. It should be good at handling many different requests on the same server and doing all that stuff. And then the end result happened to be very positive on that one. He went, you know, the server stopped crashing and everything else that was going wrong stopped happening. And it worked really well. And luckily, this was a project that literally, I think the the Go code was like 150 lines of code or something, like something super simple. I mean, there was some stuff in front of it to sort of do authentication or whatever other stuff it needed to do. But the actual Go part was so small that like, even if it didn't work, we're like, well, it's it's not enough code that it's a big deal if it doesn't work. And I think that was one of the nicest experiments I had with that where, you know, we're testing it. And this was before I knew Go that well, even. So it was kind of a nice see if it works and, and get some hands-on experience. But you're completely right that that like you have to be clear with everybody ahead of time that you don't know for sure this is going to solve the problem but if it doesn't i think you also learn something like you realize like maybe it's not cpu bound because of the th- re- the reasons we thought yeah so i guess you you should measure and really understand that first as as you're putting together the hypothesis of why you think go is going to do a better job because that, that is a quite a good point. One thing that um, was mentioned in the Gopher Slack, and by the way, you're welcome to join us in Gopher Slack in the GoTime FM channel. That's my um, marketing. Um, someone just did. <laughs> so it works. <laughs> someone mentioned this earlier, and this is something I found. I worked with a team who had different languages. And over time, they found that the bits that were written in Go kind of just kept always working and that wasn't true for other situations and i think you know it was wrapped up in uh, dependencies changing and other things not just about the language but other things going on in the team too but generally the feeling was that the go code was the stable code this was the code that you could sort of start to rely on and in that case it was actually because of testing it was because Testing is a first-class concern in Go, and so you are encouraged that. And I don't need to tell you, Chris, because you wrote Learn Go with Tests. But yeah, you know, having tests, caring about tests and having them for for your code does improve the quality and stability of, of that code. And so maybe there's something in that, do you think, that the fact that testing is um, part of the toolchain, part of the community, part of the ecosystem and the spirit of Go helps create more robust things? Yeah, I think, you know, whilst we're, you know, as we said, we, we need to be honest and realistic, you know, you can definitely write automated tests in other programming languages, uh, you know, to be clear. But I think you touched on an interesting point when you talked about um, sort of the um, the community uh, aspect of it and the kind of the conventions. It feels like because tests is such a first-class citizen, like it's right in front of you, uh, you don't have to think about what particular testing library you have to use or what, you know, mocking frameworks and all this business. Mm. You know, it's right there in front of you. It just, it, because it's accessible, you do it, right? And I, I found a lot of developers who were maybe a little bit, you know, they've done some automated testing and things, but, you know, they're still quite new to it. But by doing testing Go, and where it's all kind of very stripped back uh, and there's not a lot of fuss and nonsense, you can just start learning the fundamentals a lot easier, uh, and I think that really helps to sort of uh, build that kind of more robust software. And I suppose benchmarking also kind of fits into that as well. Like, 
it, it maybe felt silly at times, but sometimes I was just writing benchmarks for tests just because I could, uh, for code just because I could. It's, like, it's so easy. I was like, I just do it for fun, you know, because yeah. <laughs> uh, why not? You know, it's, so, it's, it's basically the same as writing tests, which I think is such a smart move by the language. It's like, you don't have to learn two different things, really. It's kind of the same thing. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. it's rather neat. But yeah, it's, it's a, I think the cultural thing is a really interesting thing across all programming languages. Like They all have their kind of cultures and things. Like I think you know, Ruby was also very up on the kind of testing uh, thing as well, right? And yeah, it's an interesting point mm. to me, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and the fuzzing proposal as a design proposal. It's the same. You, it, they're, they're folding into existing the way that tests already work today. I look forward to uh, learn go with fuzzing. <laughs> that one, that <laughs> book's going to be chaos. Um, but you're right. It's like testing is a lot of decisions are made for you with testing. So mm. that takes the cognitive load away. And then that does kind of make it um, an easier path, doesn't it? Same for GoFumpt, the fact that the code is all formatted the same. There's probably a lot of other things where decisions are taken away that actually helps in this when you when you want to introduce go because there isn't a debate about every little thing it's like mm. well these things are just sorted out this is how it this is how you do it in go um and then you can get down to the to the important bits which is hopefully solving the real problem you're going to solve yeah i think when i was uh, introducing it uh, a few of the senior developers definitely gave some grumbles when there was no kind of like sort of collection things like you know like mapping over collection or filtering or anything like that yeah uh, and i and i said like and i kind of just said just get over it like the thing <laughs> is there's just one way to write a loop we don't have to bike shed about for each or map or filter or fold left fold right you know and all this kind of stuff that in other programming languages it's like it feels powerful and it feels alluring and it feels very intellectual as well at times it's like yeah i'm gonna think about this and think about this and it's, you know it's liberating that we've got it's just like oh you need to iterate over something well you you know how to do that because yeah. you learn that on day one, and that's it. That's right. And then you don't need to learn and remember what all the different variations do, like many, mm. once, find, select. There's loads of them. And by the way, they will they will almost certainly come to go if yeah. and when generics comes. But there is, you're right, there's something quite nice about the fact that every time you want to iterate over something in Go, it's basically the same. I think there's a lot of benefit in the sense that not only is that stuff not there, but I think people don't miss, like they don't abuse things to get the results they want, not realizing like the ramifications of it. Like an example is like people might do something where they're, I don't know, iterating over a list multiple times and, and making their code really inefficient because they just don't realize that's what those things are doing under the, you know, because on their screen, they're writing one line. They're like writing, find this thing. They don't realize it has to go through the whole list to find it. Um, you know, they don't really think about any of this, what's actually happening. Whereas with Go, like you have to explicitly tell it what to do. So you're very clearly saying like, you're running a for loop here. Like there's no hidden for loops, like you're running a for loop. And that probably helps people write better code or clearer code. And at least for, you know, junior developers, I think senior developers probably understand what they're doing, but, but junior developers, I think is where you can run into some of those issues. I did have one question for you guys, I guess. So earlier when you're talking about testing and that being part of like the Go ecosystem and, and everybody really pushes for good tests, one of the things that stuck out to me at least was that when I wrote code in dynamic languages like JavaScript or Ruby, it felt like it's not that people didn't want to write tests. It's almost that they like gave up on them after the tests didn't do what they wanted them to do or they didn't catch the bugs. And one of the examples I can give is like, 
you get nil passed in somewhere and then all of a sudden everything just breaks and you, you know, all of a sudden you're writing a test for like this shouldn't be nil or you know whatever something random like that and with something like go where you know like the type checker and and everything else being there because it's a compiled language static types it was almost like people complained about the extra work up front but the end result was it allowed you to write tests that focused on the things that actually mattered and the things you wanted to test versus I felt like in some of those dynamic languages, people gave up on tests because they got so sick of just writing a bunch of silly tests for all these weird cases that you really, they didn't want to be testing those. Like that just felt like a waste of their time. And in reality, you want to test like bigger, you know, bigger picture type things sometimes. Or like, you know, if I run this function that's supposed to do X, Y, and Z, I want to see that it does X, Y, and Z. I don't want to go through and like make sure that it iterated over these things in this correct order or did something weird. Like you don't care about that. Yeah, that's especially true in JavaScript or dynamic languages because I've, I did find myself a lot of the time type checking, making sure that uh, it behaved when you passed incorrect things in. It's asking for a string, but I'm going to pass it the entire window. Totally, you can do that in JavaScript. Just give it the window. <laughs> and so, yeah, when I wanted really robust code, I exactly that, I found myself using testing so that I could make sure it would it would be, it would misbehave properly or you know it would gracefully handle those weird things. So yeah, I think the fact again the, the minimalism and the simplicity in go strong types its design I think helps with all that. Hmm. Yeah, I can relate it back to a story I was talking earlier about how um make the leap from dynamic to static for the less experienced developers was a bit of a challenge at first. And one thing I did was we had some kind of outage because of one of these silly things where we pass through an object instead of a string or something like that. I can't really recall the exact details. Mm. But, you know, we had the postmortem and stuff and we were like, okay, well, yeah, we'll write some tests to make sure this never happens again. So, again, yeah, writing these things going like, you know, make sure you send through a string and all those things. You know, these kind of tests that feel silly, but actually you need them. <laughs> Otherwise, mm -hmm. you know, you could run into trouble. Uh, and then I was able to, you know, at the following lunchtime club go, here's that same sort of problem in Go and it doesn't exist. Like I'm running the compiler. It won't let me do it. It doesn't, mm. I can't even run the tests. Like it will not let me do this. And I think mm. I like to think that was a bit of a penny drop moment for a few of them at that point as well. It's like, oh, okay, I see the value here. It's like, it's, you know, it's just doing some of the thinking work for you, right? Because it's too much, like programming is hard enough, you know, without having <laughs> to think about whether you can pass a string to a function or not. <laughs> Our friends at Pixie are solving some big problems for applications running on Kubernetes. Instantly troubleshoot your applications on Kubernetes with no instrumentation, debug with scripts, and everything lives inside Kubernetes. But don't take it from me, Kelsey Hightower is pretty bullish on what Pixie brings to the table. Kelsey, do me a favor and let our listeners know what problems Pixie solves for you. Yeah, I did this keynote at KubeCon where we talked about this path to serverless. And the whole serverless movement is really about making our applications simpler, removing the boilerplate, and pushing it down into the platform. Now, one of the most kind of prevalent platforms today is Kubernetes. Works on-prem, works on your laptop, works in the cloud, but it has this missing piece around data and observability. And this is where Pixie comes in to make that platform even better. So the more features we can get from our platform, things like instrumentation, ad hoc debugging, auto telemetry, 
I can keep all of that logic out of my code base and keep my app super simple. The simpler the app is, the easier it is to maintain. Well said, thanks Kelsey. Well, Pixie is in private beta right now, but I'm here to tell you that you're invited to their launch event on October 8th, along with Kelsey, where they'll announce and demo what they're doing with Pixie. Check this show notes for a link to the event and the repo on GitHub, or head to pixielabs.ai to learn more. Once again, pixielabs.ai. There's another thing, sometimes it's tempting to really flex and use the, some of the language features to their fullest and really show them off, but you can quickly end up with some complicated looking code and it'll probably go against your cause if you do that. So one example is uh, like channels. There are some great things you can do with channels in Go, but actually you, if, if what you really need is just simple concurrency, just consider like uh, Go routines and a wait a weight group so that you know just learn the weight group and and go routines and how that works you can do a lot you can go a long way with that with just that those two little bits and pieces and so i think that probably applies as well it's like yes we want to use uh use all the cool features but remember one of the key sort of value props of go is that it's readable and it's maintainable and so that means it's worth taking the time to make sure that you write good simple code as simple as you can get it what you really want when you show it to somebody you want them to get it you want them to immediate you want it to click they yes okay i i understand this if like with rust you're doing something and it's it's amazing what it's doing and it's but it's complicated that's just a kind of cognitive barrier. And, you know, no one likes <laughs> other people being really so much smarter than them. And you can make people feel silly just because uh, of writing complex code. And, and that's worth avoiding, I'd say. Are there any other reasons why you shouldn't introduce Go? Um, you know, and I think that's one, using the complex, for the sake of it, using those complex language features. Um, I think another one is, worth avoiding is tech wars like it's it's almost certainly no point having the argument that go is better than this language and getting into that what do you think yeah this is definitely something i was talk about i think you know internet forums about programming are just the worst right yeah you know you get these like holy wars about rust versus go and c sharp versus java and whatever and it's totally. And the thing is, like, you think it only exists on the internet, but it happens in workplaces too, and it can become incredibly toxic. I remember a long time ago, basically getting so fed up with it, I asked to get moved off the project. And I look back at that and I just think how ridiculous it is that basically I couldn't stand a programming language war anymore that I had to get off a project. But that is just what happened. And it's very easy to kind of slip into it. I don't think anyone goes into it with the intention of you know of being difficult and things. It's just because we because we get passionate and we hold these things quite dearly you know we can come across as being quite difficult and disrespectful to other people's decisions so i think it's important to try and you should be able to speak positively about go without sort of disrespecting other people's sort of opinions and decisions that they've been made 
you know, in general, it's nothing worse than like a new person coming in and then, you know, and saying how all the decisions that were made were wrong and they're stupid and stuff because they never understood the context behind those decisions. And it's just, it's very grating. So you should be able to speak positively about Go. That should be enough. And, and as we said, you know, just be honest and realistic about it as well. You know, it's not going to turn water into wine. Uh, you know, it's great, but be realistic about it. Don't insult people's intelligence about it. Mm. And if that doesn't work, you can always incept them and go into their dreams and convince Indeed. them that way. Which is yes. how you did, I know that's how you did it, James. It is interesting that as developers, we love to jump into projects and immediately think, I could do so much better if I rewrote this from scratch. And I think every developer's thought that. And then the more you work on a project, the more you make changes, the more you realize that there's a lot more complexity there than you realized. Yeah. And I think just being aware of that and empathizing with the fact that not only did they have all that complexity to deal with, but they probably didn't know about it all up front. They probably had to figure it out as they went, which makes things even more challenging. Yeah, especially if not everything is described in a test. Sometimes there's little little changes that are made throughout the code base that have a significant impact in some cases, and they aren't always covered with explicitly with test code. So they're sort of hidden features, really. That's true. But also, rewriting, I, said, I think I said this on last week's show, Hemingway said, there is no writing but rewriting. I've paraphrased that now. Rewriting stuff does make it better. So if that's why microservices and small problems, that's why like if you can rewrite something like that, you may have a good chance of making it better. But of course, you do have to be careful of what that thing is. And it's about those ins and outs, isn't it, again? I think the key is, like when Hemingway talks about rewriting, I, I doubt he means Go code. throw your entire book out and just start writing the whole book from scratch and it'll be better. <laughs> he probably means like, go find a page and like, modify that page like right. something small and manageable right and right. i think the problem is people take quotes like that or take ideas like that and then they think oh no i'm just throwing the whole book out the window and we're just going to start from scratch and it's right. like that's going to be terrible it's going to be terrible for authors so you think hemingway would have been a microservices kind of guy <laughs> i don't know if it would have been microservices but you don't even need microservices to rewrite parts like True. if you have a monolith you can literally be like okay i'm going to take this one thing that we're doing in our monolith and i'm going to make it a small api that we communicate with and like you don't have to have microservices everywhere. It could just be like this one thing's a small API and you could go write it in another language. And it's going to take a little bit of work to make that all work up front, but it's not like impossibly hard. And it's way safer than let's rewrite the whole thing. Yeah, so you, so you should be considerate to the real, what's really going on in your team and, and the goals of the team. That is going to be important. It's like you say, it can't just be, we're going to just do this um, because we love it or it's the best thing. You have to be careful of yeah, and considerate yeah, of what's yeah. really going on. Absolutely. I mean, we mentioned it earlier, but like if your team's in crunch time, that's a bad time to try to introduce a language. But even then, like a rewrite or anything like that, you have to realize that a rewrite means you probably aren't shipping new features until the rewrite's done. And that could be six months easily, depending on the you know the scope of the project. And that is never good for business for the most part. Like if it fixes a bunch of issues, potentially it could be, but for the most part, you might have better luck spending those six months just doing bug fixes and, and hunting down issues and, and solving anything you can. So I think it's, uh, I don't know. I, I think that if you're going to push for Go, you need to find the right problems for it. And if you're trying to push it for the wrong problems, it's just not a good idea. Another example, Matt, you asked for reasons why not to. I think like one example is if you have an entire team of expert Rust developers, 
you're probably not going to get a lot of value out of jumping to Go. I mean, Rust is a harder language, in my opinion, to pick up and to get everything. But if you have a team that's all senior developers that are doing great with it and they really love all the things that it provides, I would say that trying to introduce Go there is not a good idea. But if you have a team that's maybe writing some JavaScript or some Ruby or something like that and having some of the stuff written with you know, a compiler and type safety and um, you know, maybe a little more performance and a little bit of simplicity so that junior developers can you know, jump in and pick this up is, is all something you want, that's fine. But I think there probably are situations where your team just decided that you want you know, senior developers who've been writing Rust for two years and that's what you're looking for. And if somebody wants a job there, they need to learn Rust really well. And I think that's, that's not necessarily a terrible thing it's not the most inclusive thing in the world necessarily, but I think every organization has to decide what's best for them. And if you're pushing Go to an organization where it's just completely against like their core beliefs and, and values, it's just not going to work. Well, we've reached that time again. It's time for Unpopular Opinions. So, <laughs> John just finished his drink. <laughs> so, do we have any unpopular opinions? I need a new drink. <laughs> Is that one unpopular? Probably. I've been trying to think about how many bridges I want to burn uh, ever since I knew I was going to be on the show. I was thinking, mm. like, you know, where should I go with this? Um, I'm trying to keep it sensible. So, here it goes. Go is just a general purpose language. And it's not going to solve all your problems. Uh, you know, a big theme of this conversation is how context is important and your work environment is important. And if, if you want to add go to your organization, you need to understand the problems and constraints of its people. But if your environment is constant crunch, uh, you know, and all this business, even if you could wave a magic wand and make everyone write go, you know, and ignore all those problems and everyone's now writing go, your job might be a bit more novel for a while, but you're not going to enjoy it. Uh, you know, and, and to make sure I stand by this unpopular opinion, I did literally go from a role of writing Go most of the time to writing Kotlin, which is obviously an, a sacrilegious thing to say uh, on this podcast. Um, <laughs> but I did it because uh, the environment, the opportunity, everything else around it seemed wonderful. Uh, so mm. I think it's important to just have a bit of perspective around programming languages. Like They do have strengths and weaknesses and things, but they're not the ultimate source of success uh, for general software engineering. Yeah, it's what you do with them. I don't think that's going to be an unpopular opinion. Mm. Uh, damn. I think you need to burn more bridges. Uh, well, give me a minute. I think. <laughs> we, we do test these, by the way, Chris. The changelog, the GoTime FM Twitter oh, yeah, will saw, yes. do a poll. So we'll, we'll, we'll find out if that really is popular or unpopular. If it's not unpopular, uh, unfortunately, you are contractually obliged to return and do another episode. <laughs> This is how we get guests. Do you want to have another go? Yeah, thank you. All right, one more. I think the Venn diagram of Java best practices and Go best practices, it's not a big circle, but it's not as, it's not as different as uh, people think it is. I think a lot of people like to talk about Java, uh, and they're normally talking about bad Java, like an abstract factory, bean, whatever. Yeah. You know, good Java developers don't think that's good either, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you think about what good Java developers think about. It. It's all generally good software engineering stuff, like 
single responsibility, separation of concerns, loose coupling, all that kind of stuff. Right. So hopefully that will be unpopular. <laughs> That's an interesting one. I mean, you know, what stands out to me is um, like the type hierarchies. You don't really do those same type hierarchies. You can't do them in Go. Yeah, you can't, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but when used properly in languages that support it, they can be extremely good. The trouble is it's kind of, a, it gets abused and that's, yeah. we, we sort of then compare it to the abuse of it. But you, there is something to be said for the fact that you can't do it in Go, but mm. it kind of gives you a head start and, and a, at least a better chance of writing cleaner, simpler code. I think you're right that Go probably makes it, you have a better chance at it, like writing the good clean code. But I think any language given enough time and enough environments some group will find a way to write awful code like that people hate. Like if, that, if that's their version of that language, they're going to be like, this was terrible. And that might happen with Go, I don't know. There might be people who just write Go exactly like some other language and it just does not work well with the language and people are like, oh, that's a terrible language because of that. Um, I heard, who was it? I talked to somebody who claimed that they saw, basically they saw code where they were using panic and rescue essentially like exceptions like they just decided we're translating exceptions to this code and that's what we have and if you see that you're going to be like this is terrible like why didn't they just do you know raising exceptions it would have been so much easier and i could completely understand that and i think that i, I just think any language given enough time people are going to find a way to write like what's effectively code that's bad in it that, that people don't like I, I think what's interesting is um I think someone touched upon it that there's definitely some anxiety around generics and Go. Uh, a lot, of, I think, a lot of people seem to think that if if and when generics come to Go, it will suddenly turn to Java. I, I think there is, and un, un, that's an understandable concern. But you know, we were talking about culture around programming languages and things, and I think at least I like to think that the culture around Go will mean that they will be used tastefully, at least most of the time. Um, you know, when Java was first out, software developers were wearing suits, right? Uh, and UML was all the rage and things. It's a completely different sort of uh, period of time and a different culture compared to what we have now. Uh, so I like to think it will be okay, but I guess we will see. I think it's going to be like when, when developers first go to Go, they use channels typically way more than... It can, they use channels concurrency and that stuff way more than they probably should. At least that's been my experience with pretty much every developer who's tried Go out as they... They see these cool things and they want to try them and they use it too much. And then they realize that it's too much and they step back. I'm guessing generics are going to be the same thing where because it's cool and new and they can do things they couldn't do before, you're going to see a bunch of libraries that that really shouldn't exist, that don't need to exist. But I think that at some point people are going to step back and be like, all right, it was fun doing that, but like really if we're trying to get stuff done and get work done, let, let's focus on like, do we need this in generics? Do we need to actually do that? Yeah, one one argument for that is that the standard library should get a good set of generic, help useful generic things in the standard library, so that we don't end up in a situation where there's all these different libraries that work slightly differently, and they're probably all going to have the same names like of the methods and things. So I think they will do that. I think they will probably add. Um, at the same time that generics happens, there will be a set of generic data structures that we can that we can kind of coalesce around, maybe. I think they'll also have to push back on that some. Like Java's an example of like every data structure you can imagine is probably in the standard library. I remember a friend of mine had 
an interview question at one point where they asked him to essentially build a least recently used cache with, I think it was just basically least recently used cache, but like there's a linked hash map in the Java like standard library that is effectively a, an in-memory least recently used cache. Um, Cause it used like the linked list to keep like, you know, track of which one was used most re frequently. And then like the hash map is how you access each thing directly when you need to access it. And I know when he got asked the interview question, he basically, because they didn't actually phrase it as like, you would know that's what it was. But he said, you mean you just want me to use this? And basically wrote the code real quick on the whiteboard. It was like a whiteboard one. And the interviewer looked at it and basically was like, yeah, if you know that's in the standard library without looking, you probably don't need to write this. Like you probably understand it well enough that it's not a big deal. But it was just interesting that like if he'd been writing in any other language, that wouldn't have been a viable option. Like he would have had to actually write it out. And I'm wondering in Go if they're going to have that issue where people want every obscure data structure in the standard library, even though it might not necessarily need to be there. Yeah, it's a lot of weight on the shoulders of the of the Go team because uh, I, I was thinking about it and about culture, and it's almost like the standard library kind of informs some of the culture around the Go community. I feel like you know a lot of people talk about you know if you want to get an example of some best practices, there's a lot of good best practice within the standard library. You know, you can just dig in there and have a look and see how it's done. Uh, so, yeah, <laughs> good luck to them. <laughs> well, I'm afraid that's all the time we have today. Chris James, thank you so much for joining us. That's a pleasure. Check out um, Learn Go with Tests. I recommend it. John Calhoun, you're coming with me to the local sheriff. I'm claiming that reward. <laughs> See you next time. If you're a fan of GoTime, check this out. Help us spread the word and you could win a free GoTime t-shirt. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, blog about the show, or personally recommend GoTime to a friend and make sure we know about it by emailing GoTime at changelog.com. At the end of October, we'll select all emails, order by random, limit one, and ship you that free shirt. This episode of GoTime was hosted by Matt Ryer with John Calhoun. It was produced by Jared Santo with music by the Beat Freak, Breakmaster Cylinder. Thanks, as always, to our longtime sponsors, Fastly, Linode, and Rollbar. That's our show. Eric St. Martin returns to talk GopherCon next week. how many times you call me james raya i didn't call you james did i he called me james like three times i was like are you kidding me oh no <laughs> did i really that was because Man. i made the joke at the beginning yeah
Oh, you're joking. I'll tell you what. Hang on. Let me just record um, a few Chris's <laughs> for the edit. Chris. 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 Yeah, they'll do. Chris.